Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. This podcast is brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tires, batteries, and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. My newest guest is the extraordinary Kirsten Neuschaefer, recent winner of the Golden Globe Race, she circumnavigated the world in her sailing boat alone to become the first woman to win that grueling voyage. Kirsten talks to me about her preparation, her route, keeping warm and dry, the animals she saw en route, and how she dealt with being on her own at sea for 235 days. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone. In these modern times when celebrity seems like a word worked to death and even the most mediocre TV or movie talent is lauded with praise, social media views and countless so-called friends and followers, it can be difficult to find real talent, I mean real achievement, worthy of public acknowledgement, praise and respect. One such very worthy person came into my world just a few days ago introduced by mutual friends. And when I heard and read about her achievement and learned that she was going to be in the Geneva region for a few days, in fact, not that far away from where I live, I expressed my great desire to meet her. I'm pleased to say that she's sitting in front of me now and about to tell me, all of us, the story of her extraordinary achievement. Her name is Kirsten Neuschäfer. She hails originally from South Africa, but as you'll hear in a moment, she is quite literally a citizen of the world, and I don't exaggerate. Hello, Kirsten. I'm delighted to meet you. Welcome to the McKay interview. Thanks for making time for me and all those tuning in to listen to you. Thank you, Michael. I'm honoured to be here. I'm, uh, it's a real pleasure. It's great to meet you. And I must tell you now, listeners, this is on television, but Kirsten's got this wonderful complexion. You can tell after spending so many days, as you're going to hear in a moment, at sea and under the sun. Now, I should ease the suspense of listeners, Kirsten, who are probably wondering what you've actually done, which is so extraordinary. Let me say simply that you've just won the 2022 Golden Globe race, a race of global circumnavigation for lone sailors. Let me say that again. A race of global circumnavigation for lone sailors. It's more than 40,000 kilometers, 25,000 miles. Solitary sailors. And on winning became the first woman to do so. Kirsten, about 100 years ago, George Mallory is famously quoted as having replied to the question, why did you want to climb Mount Everest? With the retort, because it's there. Why did you want to sail around the world? And why did you want to do it alone? Well, I guess if one wants to compare it to Everest, it's um, possibly the Everest of what a sailing achievement could be. It's the ultimate challenge. And uh, it was something I wanted to find out whether I'd be able to do it. So, and you did it. And I did it, yes. Amazing. So tell me and the listeners a little bit about you, before we talk about the journey itself, a little bit about yourself. I've already mentioned that you come from South Africa, but please tell me a little bit more. Well, I, I was born in Pretoria in South Africa, which is uh, not on the coast. And uh, the first sailing I ever did was actually at the Hartebeersbrook Dam, which is quite close to Pretoria. 
but um, I've loved water all my life and I've loved the sea. We used to go to the coast for holidays. And um, I think as a child already, I realized I'd like to sometime spend time at sea. And obviously the, the question that is begging to be asked is, how do you learn? Well, I think one of the best ways is to learn at a young age and on dinghies like Optimists and Hobie Cats and, and smaller little sailing boats and then move on to bigger sailing uh, boats. Why? Because the smaller the boat is, the more connected you are to the wind. Every little movement you make on the boat, you feel it, whereas on a much bigger vessel, you don't necessarily feel it. So I think you get the best wind understanding when you learn on small dinghies. And that must be critical, obviously, if you're you know, right out there in the elements uh, because the wind and the, the waves are the two things to contend with. Yes. I actually, imagine. Yes, you're yeah. very right. It's all about wind awareness when you're out there sailing. And, um, and of course, like you say, the waves. And what is this Golden Globe race? I'm no sailor. I was a toddler when I crossed the Atlantic with my parents <laughs> on a ship from Kingston to London. Uh, 50 years ago, I used to crew occasionally for a friend who owned a small yacht off the coast of Jamaica. But that was of no significance. Tell me about the race, Kirsten. Where did the idea for this race come from? And when and why do you think that idea came about? And what kind of people enter it usually? Well, I think people that enter this race probably read Sir Robin Knox Johnston's um, book or Moatissier's book and would have been aware of the first solo non-stop race that ever took place in 1968. I know that name because I'm of a certain age, but just for the benefit of listeners who may be a bit younger and not sailors, tell us who Robin Knox Johnson is or was. He's still alive. Yes, he's still alive, and and he's the first person ever to have managed to sail solo non-stop around the world. And what he did was absolutely amazing because back in the day, they didn't even know whether that would be possible. So, um, So he's a legend, he's a hero of... Sailing. So you see, there, there were actually were human doubts about whether that feat could be achieved. Yes, absolutely. Yeah? And um, back in that day, it would have been even far more dangerous than it was for us because they didn't have such things as EPUBs, which are beacons that you can deploy. What's an e? Say it again. It's an emergency position indicating radio ah, beacon, which okay. would give a position if you were in trouble, if your boat had sunk or something like that. Uh, with and, and that operates via GPS, but they didn't even have that. No, back in of course that day. not. No. So, yeah. I mean, this may sound like a silly question, but please don't laugh at me. But, so, but what is the route? In which direction uh, did you sail? And is there a reason for the particular direction that you chose? Well, the race determined the direction. So um, they tell you what the race course has to be. But there is a reason uh, you sail east about. So East you, about? Yes, okay. you sail down the Atlantic. So where did you start from? So we started in Le Sable d'Olonne in France. That's off the west coast, just below Brittany. Or yeah. is it, maybe it is in Brittany. I it's don't know. just below Brittany yeah. in the yeah. Bay of Biscay. Yeah, yes. Bay of Biscay. Um, yeah. and, and you sail down the Atlantic and then you sail east about, effectively east about Antarctica. And in simple English, why? Because uh, that's the prevailing winds. Oh, so um, okay. if you sailed west about uh, the Southern Ocean, you would be sailing against the prevailing winds and current. So, yeah, that's I the see. Yeah. So you have to explain to me and to landlubbers listening the whole point of tacking. So tacking is what you only do if you have to, as opposed to going with the wind. Yes, it's it's more favourable to run with the wind because you, of course, also have the waves pushing you along. Whereas, obviously, even on a race like this, there are um, areas where you will have to beat against the wind, like notably 
uh, coming back up the Atlantic. Is that the word you use? Beat against the wind? Yes, okay, and that's good. really tacking the whole time at the closest angle that you yeah. can sail to windward. But then you're also sailing against the waves, so the waves slow you down, and it, it does beat you and your boat up quite a bit. So there's a reason why <laughs> Is it's that why beating. they call it beat? Really? Seriously, you just made that up? <laughs> well, I, I imagine that's why they call it, because you and your boat do take a beating. So. And how long did it take you? Um, it took me close on eight months, so uh, eight months. Yeah, 235 God. days. And tell us a bit about the preparation you had to do for that dramatic and long journey. And when I say preparation, I mean of the boat, physical, mm-hmm. of the body, you. And as you, you're not a petite lady, but you're not a big lady. So your body's in good shape anyway, because you're relatively young. And of the mind, being alone for almost a year. Yes, well, the preparation really starts with the boat, or at least it did for me, um, because there's certain types of boats that were permitted to do this uh, Golden Globe race, um, and they had to kind of conform to the era of 1968. And give us an idea of what that era would have been like. Typically, they would have based uh, those boats on Sir Robin Knox Johnston's boat, uh, which was, uh, you know, the boat's weren't allowed to be smaller than 32 feet, but they weren't allowed to be bigger than 36 feet. Oh, so it's quite a narrow band. Yes, it's yeah. quite narrow, and the boats <clears throat> are quite small because, you know, uh, on, on different races, the boats are quite a lot bigger, which gives you a lot more speed. So this is, from the outset, a slower race. Um, and then there were other things that they had to conform to, like they had to have a long keel and a rudder attached to the keel. They had to be made of fiberglass. They needed to have built at least 20 out of one mold, which puts them in a, a production kind of category rather than customized, so that everyone's kind of starting off with similar yeah. vessels. Um, and then, of course, you know, you weren't allowed any modern electronics or weather forecasting, no GPS, that kind of thing. I see, I see. Um, and tell me about provisions, Kirsten. I mean, if you set on a voyage of almost one year, how do you provide for food, water and other necessaries? And give us an idea also of what is necessary. Well, uh, you need to have provided food-wise for enough for, you know, possibly nine months more. You don't really know how long you're going to be out there. And uh, you're not allowed modern desalinators. So uh, it's good to start with big tanks, but you need to also have uh, prepared for the fact that you're going to have to catch rainwater because for that amount of time, you're going to have to stock up on water somewhere. But you're not allowed outside assistance and you're not going ashore. Um, The other things you need to provide for is tools and spare parts because you're very likely to have breakage and you need to be able to fix it out at sea. Um, So... That's in a nutshell what it is. But in terms of food, uh, it's going to be a lot of canned food, uh, rice, pasta, non-perishable stuff. Um, and you need to try and make sure that you've got a, a balanced diet. And you can it. cook reasonably well on a yes, small yet. Yes, That's you, not a problem. Yeah, you've got a, I had a gas stove, um, so you have to make sure you've got enough gas. And you have to keep in mind that you can't waste gas. But the cooking is otherwise quite comfortable. And catching rainwater, how do you do that? Um, well, I had two methods. I would either, if, if it was horizontal rain because the wind was blowing strong, I would catch it uh, under the boom because the mainsail would catch a lot of that water. So you just wait for the wet mainsail to have been rinsed a little bit so that most of the salt is out. And then I just hold a bucket directly under the, the gooseneck. And then you boil it? No, I would just drink it just drink like it. that. If it tasted fine, I'd drink yeah. it just like that. God, yeah. okay. <laughs> My guest today is Kirsten Neuschäfer, this year's winner of the Golden Globe Round the World Single-Handed Yacht Race, and we're talking about her stupendous voyage. Kirsten, in simple landlubber's language, 
how do you navigate? Please explain. Did you ever get lost? And how did you know if you were lost? <laughs> well, um, I was apprehensive when I left because it was my first trip that I would absolutely not have a GPS, although I'd practiced celestial navigation beforehand. But it's amazing how you gain confidence when you realize you are actually there where you should be, especially when an island pops up and it is there where you thought it would be. It's a lovely feeling. But in a nutshell, uh, the theory behind it is you need to have accurate time. So you get a time signal off the HF radio, which also existed in 1968. And then you take a measurement between the horizon and any celestial body, like the sun, the moon, the stars, the planet. So you need to be able to see the horizon. You need to be able to see the celestial body that you're taking the sight off. And based on the angle and the time uh, and with almanacs that give you pre-calculated data, you can work out your position. Oh, I see. So you, I, I hadn't realized that, but the, the critical element there is time. Yes, yeah. the time is very important. I see, I see. And the weather... Tell me about what you encountered, the sun, the wind, uh, the doldrums. I'm curious to know what that's like, the waves and the rain. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, well, it's an interesting race because you're going through different climatic zones uh, from the tropics down into the southern ocean where it's cold back up into the tropics again. Uh, so you've got to deal with either light winds or no winds where you're using... And a, a light wind will be roughly how fast? Oh, it could be anything from two knots to... Eight or ten. Oh, so really gentle. Really gentle, yeah. and you have to try and keep your boat moving with uh, sails like spinnakers that catch lighter winds. The big, these so are the big triangular ones at the front. Exactly, in my like, simple like, like big balloons. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. Uh, um, and then, obviously, when you're down in the southern ocean, it's the stormiest ocean. There's not much land to break the waves and the weather. Uh, so that's where you're dealing with heavy weather storm tactics to keep yourself on the boat safe. And um, it's a different kind of sailing, and it's cold. And most of the boats, certainly my boat, didn't have any heating. Uh, so there's also that aspect to deal with. No heating? No heating. Why, why not? Well, because the best kind of heating would be uh, <clears throat> heating that operates off diesel. Uh, but we had a very limited fuel allowance. We were only allowed to burn 25 liters of fuel. And for every liter we burned uh, over and above that, we'd get a two-hour penalty. And that's to keep the race environmentally friendly as well. Uh, so there was no fuel allowance for, for burning diesel and other methods of heating become complicated like having a solid combustible or something like that. So I just didn't have any heating. So you've had lots of the appropriate clothing to wear and wrap up well. Yes, and actually the cold isn't as much of a problem as the damp. Yes. You just can't drive out the damp and things yes. start going moldy. So yes, yeah. I can imagine that must yeah. be quite a problem. Before we go on to the next question, tell me a little bit about the doldrums. I'm just curious. I mean, first of all, remind me where the doldrums are on the globe yes, in well, the latitude. The doldrums are just around the equator. Yeah. Um, sometimes a little bit north. North and south. Yes. So, sometimes they're, it really depends on the season. They move a little bit, but sometimes they're north of and sometimes they're south of the equator. And uh, they're probably the most, for me, it was the most difficult part of the and journey. why? Uh, going down the Atlantic, I got lucky and I got through the doldrums quite easily. But coming back up the Atlantic, I got stuck in the doldrums for almost two weeks. Two weeks? Yes, Good with God. either no wind or very light wind. And it's a very frustrating thing because there's nothing you can do. You have to. You just have to wait. You have to just wait. And you have no weather information because of the nature of it being a retro race. So you just don't know how long you're going to have to and wait. And just guard your position. As best you can. Yes, and try and use every little squall and every little breath of wind to keep moving. 
but that was for me mentally the most challenging. Um, and, and the other thing is uh, when you've got wind in your sails, uh, your, your boat has a rhythm. But when you've got no wind, the boat just pitches and rolls without any rhythm. It's hot. There's no airflow. Um, it's the tropics. So it's, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough on the mind. Well, let's talk a little bit more, more about, about that, Kirsten. First of all, I'm curious to know about sleep and physical fatigue and rest and recovery. How do you manage all those important stages of taking care of yourself? Well, most of the time sleep wasn't an issue because uh, the majority of this race is far offshore and even in the Southern Ocean you don't even see ships. So there's not really much danger of colliding with anything like land or with a, another vessel. Um, it's just the changing weather. But the weather, you know what the weather patterns roughly are. So you often have an idea of, okay, the wind's going to be blowing in this direction for uh, you know, the next few hours, and if it's stable, you take the opportunity to rest. And sometimes you could easily sleep for up to six hours, but a, a light sleep so that uh, you're very in tune with your boat. If the motion of the boat changes, you wake up, or if there's a sound, uh, you wake up and go and verify that everything's okay. But where it does become more tricky is if you're in, in, in very variable weather that's changing all the time, if you're in a shipping lane or if you're close to land, because land is, of course, always a danger. And in those cases, you'd sleep for maybe 15, 20 minutes catnaps, get up, verify, is everything okay? Uh, intervene if you have to change the sails, whatever is required, go back to sleep again. And that that's a little bit more tiring, but it is doable and it is important not to get to a point of fatigue where you risk falling asleep and not waking working. up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can imagine that must be quite dangerous. Yeah, And being solitary, being alone, how do you manage being alone with your own company for so long? I actually really enjoyed it. And um, fortunately, I'd already done a few long single-handed trips and notably for my preparation also on my own boat. Uh, I first sailed down from Canada where I'd bought and worked on the boat to refit it down to South Africa which was two months You sailed from Canada to South Africa? Indeed, wow. yes. And then from South Africa back up to France for the start of the race. So I'd already had, uh, I'd already done the best part of 13,000 miles alone before the race even started. You're amazing, absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, so that, I felt, I felt good with that. However, I'd, I'd never spent eight months on my own, but I, I found I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Are you an only child? Do you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister. One sister. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Gosh, it's amazing that you could cope. And, and life at sea and the life around you at sea, the birds, the fishes, the dolphins, the whales. Tell me, what did you see and who did you, who did you meet you yes. en route? Uh, tell me what you saw. Well, the animals were actually really special to me because it's the only other living creatures you see out there. Um, and I was incredibly lucky, for example, just off Cape Town. It was the, se the season when the whales all, all passed the coastline. Yeah. And I got becalmed very close inshore, uh, passing Cape Town, and I had humpback whales surfacing. No, no right. danger. Is there danger to you? Uh, if you were moving... Um, they could be a danger because you could potentially mm. collide, but I was just drifting. And you're not allowed approaching them legally in, in terms of respecting the wildlife. But I was just drifting and they were approaching me and they were surfacing right next to the boat, um, you know, that I had the spray blowing over the, the deck. They were that, that close. They were that close. Good I could girl. almost lean over and touch them. And that was just an experience that absolutely filled me with joy. And in fact, by morning, I had three different species around the drifting boat, whales, dolphins, and Cape Fur seals all simultaneously around the boat. And I've never experienced And you had your camera with you, I hope. Uh, yes, yes, I had my camera with me. And uh, <laughs> yeah, 
And then the other type of wildlife that you see a lot uh, is seabirds, albatross and yeah. um, various other seabirds. And sometimes that's the only other life you see out there. So you're always happy to see them. And sometimes you can recognize, especially with albatross, that a, some, a same bird has been following your boat. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. And this, again, this may sound like a silly question, but do you sense that they're a bit curious about yes. who the hell are you, what are you doing here Absol in our territory? Yes, you know? absolutely. Um, and that's the lovely thing about uh, marine life is they are curious. Dolphins are curious. They come up to the boat. Whales are curious. Birds they look are curious. at you. They look yeah, at you. Yeah. With the albatross, for example, um, they like to glide when there's wind. But if there's no wind, they drift on. They bob around on the water, and they come very close to you, who's also drifting. So uh, it's a nice interaction. Seasickness. I mean, there'll be a lot of people listening to <laughs> who are probably feeling quite sick <laughs> just with your description. But your health. Tell me about your endurance and resilience. What provisions? were made for emergencies in case something really life-threatening had happened to you en route. Tell me about your health and seasickness. Well, uh, we actually took, all of us, it was uh, compulsory to take a very comprehensive first aid kit that was issued to us by a doctor who specialised in dealing with marine emergencies. Uh, uh, and we had to do a, uh, a very intensive first aid medical training course beforehand as well so that we could deal with issues pertaining to our own health or even offer assistance to someone else. That's yeah, but if something could happen to you, I mean, they'd have to take you off the boat. They, they would, and that's yeah. where uh, we had, you know, modern devices like uh, EPIRBs. And that was allowed, obviously. That was allowed. So they did obviously make exception when it came to safety to have modern devices like that. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, I tread carefully on this, and I don't mean it to sound in any way misogynistic because it's not and full of admiration for what you're doing but a lot of praise is being showered on you because you're a woman and the first woman to have won this important race but explain to me again how physical is sailing the kind of sailing you've done do men dominate such races why is, is it to do with physical strength or is it with a certain wanderlust that some men have uh, or a sense of longing for an extreme adventure which again some men I, I, i'm not one of those men have but apart from yourself have you come across many other women driven to do what you do uh not that many and it is as you say quite a male dominated industry uh, in my opinion, it doesn't have anything to do with physical strength because I don't feel that you need to be that incredibly strong. Uh, you've got winches and things like that. And the like technology that. of winches and pulleys, it, and that, exactly. that, that works. It works, and, and you don't need that immense kind of strength. And in terms of the mental strength, I think you know, male and female should be very much the same. Uh, I don't know if it's, it might have to do with the wanderlust. I've always had that wanderlust inherently. But it might also have to do with tradition, you know, that this exploration and uh, was traditionally a man's thing. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way society is structured around that kind of thing. Yeah, you, I think you're right. I think that's, that's a good, uh, good explanation. Was there a scientific dimension to your long journey? Was your health monitored in any way, even remotely, or was the boat measured and assessed for wear and tear en route? Uh, my health was not monitored other than by myself. And interestingly, a lot of people said to me uh, when I arrived that I didn't look like I'd lost any weight, whereas some of the men that arrived looked quite emaciated. It's um, quite a strong word to use, <laughs> emaciated. Is that bad, was it? Well, good. that's maybe a little exaggerated. <laughs> but some of them did run out of food beforehand. Um, ah, well, that has yeah. it, yes, I can see, yeah. So, but I feel... Um, Monitoring my own health, I feel there was not much change, so, okay. except that I did start craving fresh food towards I the end. I can imagine, yeah. yeah. Um, and 
Yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, and in terms that. of the wear and tear on the boat, my boat actually did extremely well. There was just uh, standard wear on the sails and the, the, the running rigging and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. And is such a journey expensive? I mean, how is it financed? Yes, it is quite expensive in terms of an ocean race, around the world race. It's a very small budget compared to other races, but it's still expensive because of the boat costs money, the entrance fees cost money, and there are a whole lot of other expensive safety equipment, um, medical equipment, whatever. So I would say if you want to competitively race the Golden Globe, you're probably looking at a budget of about 350000 US dollars. Okay. Uh, and, you know, the way I did it is I got little sponsorships. I got private people funding. I, I lent money. Uh, it was really, I'd never done anything like this. So it was a learning curve of how would I achieve it. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah interesting. And what do you think you know now that you didn't know a year ago, Kirsten? Well, I definitely think I've emerged out of it as a better sailor. Um, I've learned to sail faster, to focus more on the performance of a vessel. And I gained a lot of knowledge in boat building, refitting, because I was so actively involved in the refit of my own boat. It was just two, two of us working. We didn't have the boat in a professional yard. So, um, so in a technical sense, I also gained a lot of new experience. Yeah. And a personal question, and if you don't want to answer this, tell me, I'd understand <laughs> it. But are you a spiritual person? I mean, do you believe in God? I just wonder what you reflected on in your quiet moments, alone at sea, or was there simply no time for that? No, there is a lot of time for that uh, on, a, on, on a journey like this because it's a slow race. And I would say that I am a spiritual person. I don't necessarily believe in a God in the traditional sense, but I've always loved being in nature. Um, so nature is almost like my goddess. And that's being in nature, whether it's walking in the mountains or camping on the beach or being at sea is where I feel I've got an attachment to the earth and, and that's where I'm at my happiest. And that's why I think loneliness didn't really bother me because firstly I'd chosen to be there and if I'm in nature, I don't feel lonely. I just enjoy the solitude. Fantastic, great answer. Kirsten, obvious question, last question. What next? I mean, the world must be your oyster. So what will you do now? Well, it's a, a thing. It's a difficult question to answer because since 2019, I've put all my focus just into this project. And now I'm at the end of it, um, and everyone's saying, yes, what next, a Vendée Globe? Or, and I'm saying, you know, the next thing I want to do is go home and uh, have a nice long hike with my dog on the coastline <laughs> of the Chance Sky <laughs> and just reinvent myself. Yeah. Fantastic. Kirsten, I'm full of admiration for you and what you've achieved. Thanks for making time for me, answering all my questions, even though some of them are quite silly. I wish you all good luck in the future. My guest today has been Kirsten Neuscheffer, the current winner of the 2022 Golden Globe race. That's the formidably challenging, round-the-world, single-handed yacht race. Thanks again, Kirsten. Thank you so much. It's been a real honour. Thanks for listening to the McKay Interview podcast, brought to you by Kyoto Japan Automotive Group, a company which I've known personally for over 20 years, and your one-stop shop for tyres, batteries and auto parts. Visit their website at www.kyotojap.com for more details. And you can find more podcasts on Anchor FM. Just Google McKay Interview Anchor FM. Thanks again for listening.